This podcast is a frank discussion on sexual assault. If you are in the USA for free and confidential help, call 1-800-865-HOPE in Australia for confidential counseling and support in cases of sexual assault or abuse. Please call 1-800-RESPECT. Nancy Hogshead Makar is a record breaker and a lawmaker. After surviving a violent sexual assault by a stranger while jogging, Nancy surmounted great obstacles in life and recovered to become a three-time Olympic gold medal champion, a pioneering civil rights lawyer, and she is the founder and CEO for Champion Women, an advocacy for girls and women in sport. With a remarkable professional career, Nancy takes us back to her assault at Duke University and explains why, in her words, she was one of the lucky ones. It is my great privilege and honor to welcome my friend and my mentor, Nancy Hogshead Makar, to Open Stance. Welcome, Nancy. I am Tracy Smith, checking in from Sydney, Australia. Where does this podcast find you today? I'm in the USA in Jacksonville, Florida. And how are you feeling about the focus of our conversation today, Nancy? I'm really looking forward to it. I think that um, what you're doing here, Tracy, I'm so proud of you for doing this. And um, you are doing exactly what I needed when I was 19 years old. So thank you very much for doing what you're doing. Um, for, uh, with everything I've got and on behalf of everyone listening from around the world, thank you for being here because um, I do believe in my heart that sharing our stories and sharing our experiences out loud is a way to serve others and, and there's no greater value in my mind than, than doing that. And this is, this is just a platform for all of us to come together and do this together. Um, and it, if it, it wouldn't happen without voices like yours. So. So thank you, you make this happen. Nancy, earlier I texted you to confirm the focus for our conversation today. And that is talking about trauma leads to healing. You gave me the thumbs up and then you added, and so does listening. Talking about trauma leads to healing and so does listening. What do you mean by this? I mean that having somebody really be a catcher's mitt for you, somebody who listens in a way that kind of gets what it is that you're saying and doesn't try to change it and doesn't try to give you advice or doesn't try to, you know, take the conversation further, but just is a catcher's mitt, that that creates speaking, that somebody feels free to speak when they feel like they're kind of gotten, when somebody appreciates what it is that they're saying and they let it kind of hit home in their chest. I agreed 100%, and I'm glad that you actually pointed that out because I believe it, but um, it wasn't in words for me. Okay, um, here's a statistic. Actually, let's just go back real quickly. For people that don't know your story, Nancy, are you okay to give um, just a little understanding of what happened to you in 1981 at, at Duke sure. as a sophomore? Yeah, so it was uh, right before Thanksgiving break and I was out on a run and it was a beautiful, crisp evening night. And um, Duke University has two campuses, east and west. And there's a thing that connects the two of them called Campus Drive. 
and um, there are buses that go back and forth and we usually call it the social run. I was out on a run and um, a guy came running towards me kind of slowly. And I did have alarm bells going off in my head, but I thought, come on, this is Duke, relax. But I did start running in the street instead of on the sidewalk. And uh, he stopped me to say, hey, can you tell me where Duke University is? And he's right between the two, like he had to be coming either from East Campus or from West Campus. And, um, and when I stopped and I was like, huh, uh, he grabbed me and then with centrifugal force pulled me in. And usually I say to people who've been in the area, there are three big evergreen trees and we fought inside those evergreen trees. Like people know exactly where I'm, when I say that, where it is. And um, it was a fight to the death. Like who was gonna win this fight? And I lost. And um, so I kind of knew what was coming. So he took me back into the woods. And as soon as he got me kind of away from the, the traffic and the you know people going back and forth, I knew that there was just no way somebody was gonna see me. And so he raped me then. The, the total event, including the fight, the beating, the getting raped, the whole thing was about two and a half hours. And um, I give a lot of credit to if you can believe it, 17 magazine that said, told me, said, uh, you know, if you ever get into a situation like that, try to have them see you as a person. So I did my best. You know, I tried to tell him how much my mother loved me. And I tried to tell him, you know, here's what I'm majoring in. And I'm a swimmer. And yes, I'm a 1980 Olympian. I mean, I, I liked, you know, kind of bear it all and tried to have him, you know, see me and um, nothing was working um, until it, this went on and on and on. <clears throat> and until um, it was getting very, very cold outside and it was so cold that I started passing out. And if you've ever, um, those of you who are athletes out there, you've probably had this experience, but where the world kind of closes in on you and um, so the world started closing in and I thought like, you are a goner. This is, there's no way you're gonna get, so I started to cry because I thought there's just nothing else I can do. And he um, liked it. I could tell when that he liked my tears and he kind of like leaned in, he listened and whatnot. So I started crying harder and um, you know, he, got up and left. I mean, he got up and he was over and he said, you know, Nancy, I really respect you. I had told him my name. I told him where I lived. And um, within just a couple minutes, he was gone. But, you know, if you would have told me the impact that a rape would have had on a person's life, I never would have believed it. And I actually told myself, I don't know if you did this too, Tracy, but I told myself when I was in the emergency room that um, this was a bad two and a half hours and you are not gonna let it stop you from getting good grades and from, and from you know, being the best swimmer. And, um, and that was honestly the worst thing I 
possibly could have said to myself. It was the most damaging thing because I wasn't going to let myself heal if I didn't acknowledge and didn't, you know, recognize. Um, I don't know. So I had a really bad case yeah. of PTSD. Did you have a case of PTSD? Um, so a little different, very different from yours. I buried the trauma the minute I was drugged unconscious for 10 hours and I was raped while I was unconscious. So I don't remember being raped. I woke up to the crime of rape and everything that had happened. So I was um, in a bad state, but I don't remember it. So, and then I just buried it in the, in the moment that I saw the wreckage. Yeah. And it wasn't until seven years later that I dealt with it. It was seven years later that I had some PTSD uh, because the therapist were able to help me and um, actually identify it because I didn't know what it was sure. or if I had it. But yeah, I did have it, but it was delayed, I guess. Um, yeah. And actually, that's probably not true. I probably had it for seven years, but just had no idea I was experiencing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, back, this is 1981, so there was no understanding of what PTSD was. The, 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 the way people would describe it is, well, you are really messed up, is how it was, how I felt. And, and I didn't have any sense that it would ever end, that there, it was possible to end, and, or that, um, you know, I could heal. I didn't, I didn't have an understanding that like how I felt now was not going to be my future, but I, that, that I was doomed for the rest of my life to feel this um, I felt chronically unsafe. I felt um, I was having crazy cuckoo for Cocoa Puff thoughts in my head about, you know, I'd be in class and would have these ideas that somebody was going to come in with a machine gun. Now, the guy who raped me was did not have a machine gun. <laughs> and, and yet I was having like, cuckoo, like, I, I felt completely out of control. Um, um, I'm not a big drinker and, um, it was probably one of the times in my life where I did drink. Um, and, um, I, you know, I remember like oh, so many crazy times and thank God for Duke university, because there was, a the, the Dean of students back then, her name was Sue Waslick. She's still there. And, uh, she was so kind and nice to me in ways that like, I didn't even appreciate at the time. But uh, I was living in, um, you'll appreciate this, Tracy, it was called New Dorms. So it was down, like you had to go through woods to get there. Yeah. And, and I, I just couldn't walk through it. And so they moved me onto Main West, which everybody wants to live on Main West, right? And you couldn't, you couldn't walk through it because it reminded you of the woods or it just so dark oh, and oh. scary or up, you just. Right, yeah, being secure. in that cold night air was just, it was just too too much for me. And at the same time, like recognizing that this was crazy behavior. Like I was perfectly safe. There were people around me. There was no way I was going to get raped, but I, I, and I, I would try to talk myself into, um, you know, I like, you know, you're being ridiculous and you need to calm down and you're fine, but it I couldn't help it. Right. So, and that's, that's what PTSD is like is, there's no amount of self-talk that can that could make me calm down. So what happens in PTSD, for those of you that don't know, is the brain gets overwhelmingly um, 
flooded with adrenaline during this horrific event. And it just sort of rewires and it sort of floods, right? And so you get sort of tricked into thinking that you're in fight or flight all the time. And so it's very hard, even though, you know, I, I knew <laughs> um, when I was in a group of people that there was nothing that was going to happen to me and I still could not make myself feel safe. There is no regulation and so you obviously know and again for people that haven't studied the brain much the prefrontal cortex is what we're talking about so yes it just goes into overdrive and it never comes out of that uh, out of that level where it's just constantly firing and um yeah so that that actually that you understand that so um, at such a deep level brings me to the next question i have so um in America, one in five women are raped on college campuses. That's the statistic. More than 90% do not report the rape because it's too scary for all the reasons that we're talking about where you're in so much fear. Actually, the prefrontal cortex gets disabled. So it's a logical thinking part of our brain, making executive decisions for us all day, every day, pick up your coffee, do the laundry, vacuum, get your kids, all that stuff completely disabled. Um, so here you are two and a half hours in the woods and you are fighting for your life. Most people, 90%, we've just heard, bury the secret, do not report, and they go on to live for 10, 20, 30 years with these really tough secrets of trauma. And most, in some cases, a lifetime. I was one of these people. You were attacked while jogging by a stranger, assaulted, raped, and your life was in danger. This is an, a situation with involving extreme fear, and the studies show 90% don't report. Yet you went and told somebody, Nancy, you, why did you do this? How did you do this? Yeah, I give, so first of all, um, I am the, you know, 2% of rapes that happen that are by people they don't know that happen, um, that happen um, with, uh, you know, it's not in a social context that were ambushed like I was. That's a very rare type of situation. And the feminists who went before me made it safe for me to go report my rape. So women who, if I had been drinking, if I had been wearing a sexy skirt, which I've done a million times, if I had been flirting with them, if I had known them, if that person had any power, um, it would have been a totally different situation. Um, my rapist had no power. My rapist talked in the vernacular of urban. Um, they, he smelled, he, um, um, he hadn't shaved, he, right? So this is not, uh, I, I doubted seriously, this was another Duke student, right? So because it wasn't a student, because it wasn't a professor, because it wasn't a great athlete, because it wasn't, um, right? All of the other ways that people acquire power, it was, right, I didn't have any of that. So therefore people could be nice to me and they could be kind to me. So, um, so I, I, um, so while, while I was getting raped, he would say like, I was cold and that's why I started passing out. 
And he would say, oh, let me take you to a hotel. And I knew, this is before Oprah Winfrey said, don't go to the second location. I knew that if I got in a car with him and went to a hotel, whatever, that um, I was a goner, right? So I like wanted him to kind of finish up right there and get done. And so I looked for a car that was coming from one direction, but not the other direction, because he kept pointing to his car, right, where it was. So I wanted, I didn't want it to come from, right, because it could have been him that was coming with his car. So I finally got somebody to come with a car. And um, this is to show you, ordinarily, I just would have gotten in the car. But right away, this is, this is within 10 minutes or 15 minutes of having been raped, was I made this guy promise in Scout's honor style that he was not going to rape me. And um, he was like kind of a Spanish speaking guy. And he was, it was like an old kind of a jalopy and the car was dirty and he was like cleaning stuff out of the car. And he was as freaked out as I was. And I remember like screaming, like kind of that blood curdling scream when I got in the car, like I made it, I got out of there. And um, he just, you know, was as nice as he possibly could have been, but I could tell like he was really freaked out. And, you know, I would have, because yeah. I was beaten up and, you know, I had all sticks in my hair and, um, and anyway, so he took me and right away the police, like they were talking to him separately, the, right? Cause they wanted to find out. And so he got them in his car and, and he was showing them like where he was that he had picked me up. But I'm convinced that the reason why I was able to go and tell the police was because um, the was because of the feminists that went before me. In most parts of the world, if I had been raped the exact same situation, I would have had to marry that guy. My family would never have talked to me again. I would have been disowned, but it's only because of the feminists wow. that had changed things. This was in 1981. And my hope is that women who who were raped in cir circumstances that were different, right? So we see Bill Cosby and, and the whole Me Too movement, right? We say the, the Weinstein and the, you know, so many other uh, survivors who've come forward and, and you see people of great power still being prosecuted and still having criminal and personal sanctions because of it. But I'm telling you, I... I um, I, I, I'm lucky in so many, I mean, I got raped, but <laughs> in so many ways, in so many ways, I'm really lucky. And I, I don't want to, um, sort of, uh, sometimes people want to tell the story that, um, Nancy was raped. And then two and a half years later, she won in the Olympics. And isn't she amazing? Wrong story. It's not, so because I was raped in this very finite way, I didn't know him, I wasn't wearing anything sexy, I hadn't been drinking, and I was sort of where I was supposed to be. Uh, because of that, I got a ton of help. I got moved. Um, um, I, I dropped two classes right away. I, um, I could kind of go on like all the nice, nice, nice things, but here's kind of the cherry on the top. I come back to school. And it was very hard for me to park where I was supposed to park, like where my parking ticket was. Um, it's right next to Card Gym. You know where that is, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I so that's so that's that's where I wanted to park, but sometimes the lot was full, and I would park illegally there, and I would get a ticket. 
So I had a stack of tickets. I and you parked, paid you parked illegally. Why? Because 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 otherwise I was going to park in Guam. Remember Guam? Did you did they yes. call it Guam? Yes, they, they did. Later when you were there. Absolutely. Okay. So I was going to have to park in Guam. So when I was going to have to walk through woods to get back right. to my door. So a trigger. You were worried about being unsafe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would totally lie to myself every single time, like, oh, I'm fine. It's just that mm, this is a little more comfortable just to be parking here, right? I wouldn't say like, Ugh. right? I would just be like, you know, just today, I think I'll just park here. Okay, so big stack of tickets, go to the go to the public safety. Now remember, by this time, I know everybody there because I've like been looking through books and they've like taken me in the car and we've gone all around uh, Durham to try to find the guy, right? So they totally know me. And they say, Nancy, why do you have all these tickets? And, and I kind of broke down and said like, look, I just can't park over in Guam. And they said, well, let us just forgive these tickets and here, let us give you a special parking pass. So I got a special parking pass to park wherever it was that I wanted on campus. If every rape victim got the help that I got and the, the attention and the care that I got. Do you know how, I mean, I, I, so now I'm a civil rights lawyer and I represent lots and lots of rape victims and I deal with the issue, the policy issue of sexual violence on both campuses and the Olympic movement. Almost no one gets what I got. Well, if they did, they don't call me, <laughs> right? But I recognize just what rare air that I'm in and how every rape survivor deserves what I got. They don't get it, but they deserve it and they should get it. And if they did, how one in four women is sexually assaulted, as you were saying, most of them don't report for whatever reason, but we as like, I think of like my spirit and we as a human, right? So what would it mean if one in four women really got to be who they're supposed to be because they got the help that they needed, that they were not shamed into silence, that they got the help that they needed. I mean, what, I mean, imagine what would your life have been like, Tracy? Yeah, so that's a, a philosophical question that confronts me probably every day of my life when I go running every single day. And I was 19 years old also, I'm 50 years old now. So uh, yeah, it is the big question in life. and for many, many years, it was a destructive question to me because I was a tennis player. Uh, I played tennis at Duke. I ended up giving it a shot on the women's pro tennis circuit. I had dreams of being an Olympian and being in the top 50. When I was six, I was gonna be number one in the world. And then when I got a bit older, I got a little more realistic. I said, let's go top 50. And those dreams fell away from me big time. And whether or not I was going to be destined for that. They fell away for these reasons. And I think, what if all the time? And it wasn't until doing the hard work in the hard yards, confronting my rape, confronting my life, confronting all of this, once I came out of silence and secrecy, those many years later put me on a path to where I'm sitting today right now. And in that process, uh, I completely lost my self-belief. That's why on the tennis courts, I knew I could be a top 50 player. 
I didn't believe it though, because my belief was shattered by rape. And that's eventually why I just quit tennis because I knew there was gonna be no success for me until I dealt with this secret. And the point of the story is through the hard work and the years later taking care of myself, I got my self-belief back and I got it bigger and stronger than ever before. And it's put me on a pathway to uh, this chair right now, sitting here with you, Nancy, and mm. serving other people using an experience in my life that uh, I feel like the big guy upstairs gave me for a massive reason. And I'm sitting here to be able to use a voice that he gave me as a vessel and I am doing work to help other people. That's the validation and the value and the fulfillment, complete joy in my life. So yeah, the what ifs were mass, the what ifs were massive. I wanted to be walking out in that Olympic stadium as an athlete. I wasn't. Right. But right. it is. Right. So you think about right. it. Right. And and yeah. Yeah. No, I answering that I, question. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I searched desperately for a, I'm 59. So I searched desperately for a, a 50 year old, 59, whatever, but a, a woman who had, who had had, who had been raped and then who had a great life. And the people who were speaking about it had really shitty lives. And, and when you read what they were writing about rape or what it's like the anger was just like so fresh hot off the right and it's like I got that okay I feel that too I'm I'm with you girlfriend but like I wanted like to be on the other side and I was like well how do I get there and remember this is 1981 nobody knew about that there was this thing called PTSD so um there wasn't a lot of help it was like people kind of looked at me like hmm you're really in trouble and, and I would have loved to have had somebody, frankly, like me, like you, like Kim Rodenbaugh, like somebody who has been on the other side of it. Because typically when people are on the other side of it, they quit talking about it. If every woman who was on the other side of it would speak up about their experience, the, the hope the, um, the possibilities that it gives to current young women who are being raped about what, it, what the possibility is for their life changes dramatically. Does that make sense? It does. And I have to add to that American mm -hmm. statistics again, one in six males will be raped before the time they're 18. So we need to include them in that particular discussion because talking about trauma is for everyone because right. rape does not discriminate as we know uh, this is so yeah you took okay ptsd we've talked about that how did you actually know you had it did you have a therapist did you get counseling how did you even know that you had symptoms or in 1981 who told you you had it nobody told me i had it people said i was just messed up there was no there was no pathway forward there was no diagnosis people didn't there was no right so um, it turns out that the things that I did tended in retrospect, like, oh, that's exactly what people with PTSD are supposed to do, right? So one of the things, and you did it too, Tracy, which is um, it turns out that one thing that calms the brain is hard, hard, hard exercise. So, you know, I, I took, a, so Duke 
thank God, thank you, redshirted me for a year. So I got my full scholarship and I didn't have to train at all. I could just go away. But when I went back to swim, when I went back to it um, um, and I started training really hard, it really did like, you know, being so just so you know what training for the Olympics and swimming is like, as opposed to tennis is tell us it is about yeah. how, how many about hours hard. a day, how many laps a day, how many days a week? Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's pretty brutal. It is. Well, and I have to say, it's not so bad now as it was then, but it was four hours a day in the water. It was about 800 laps, which is uh, about a little less than 13 miles a day. This is even for sprinters like myself. Um, we're training that hard. This is um, so every sport pushes right to the point of injury uh, or sickness. And because like when you're hitting the ball and you're running back and forth and you're stopping and starting, you know, you've got gravity hitting, right? And you've got, you, you're either going to get sick or injured much, much better. So in a swimmer, you're being held up in this water and you also don't have heat. So heat and gravity are the things that hold people back. A high, a high jumper or a sprinter typically only works out really, really hard a year uh, or a day is an hour a day, a really hard workout. Swimmers, again, you're not going to, you're not close to getting injured or sick. So you, right, you can push it that much further, but all of that, you know, that back and forth training, <laughs> so dull, um, was, it was very calming of my brain. And then, so that was sort of number one, good thing that I ended up doing. Number two is when I was training, um, unlike tennis, where you like, you have to concentrate, you've got to, you know, the ball and the game and right, your competitor or everything. My mind could be a million miles away. And, um, and I could fantasize about being in the woods with my rapist. But this time I had a machete. And um, so I could, I could, I used to replay the scenario all the time, but this time I would win. And, um, and I, I, usually when I tell a story about like having a machete and like slicing and blood's going everywhere, people are like, they, they really recoil at that idea, like th that I might actually do it or something, but it really was healing for me. Like everybody that wants to have those thoughts or wants to have that the sort of replay those ideas, like go for it, sister or brother. Um, right. So, uh, so, and, and I noticed that when I was in the woods and I was slicing and dicing and I was fighting, but I was winning is it would give me adrenaline and I could go faster. So I could use this horrible, horrible experience to actually help me be a better athlete. So I would, so then I realized like, Ooh, like, right. So then I would, I just kept doing it over and over and over again. It turns out that therapists will tell you that that is a, that is a way of, healing of sort of of um sort of reimagining what happened you develop a different narrative so that um i saw myself as the winner in this situation and that um i got my sense of self back that um did you i was in control of my life but did you did you ever lose your self-belief in this time <sighs> like as, as, as messed up as a mind can possibly be, 
in the fall of 2000, or sorry, 1981 and the spring of 1982 is how bad I was. Like I, I used to get up in the middle of the night 10 times to go check the door to make sure it was locked, knowing that it was locked. But and, and embarrassed that I knew that it was locked and couldn't stop it. And, and was so embarrassed about knowing it was locked and not being able to keep myself from going and checking and making sure that the door is locked that um, I wouldn't even tell my therapist. I wouldn't tell my best friends that I was doing this. I would just say, oh, I didn't have a good night's sleep last night. But I was, I was embarrassed about having PTSD. I had no, I didn't know anyone that ever had a mental health issue. And I came from, I was already a 1980 Olympian. I had been world-class already for five years. I almost made the 1976 Olympic team. Um, this is 1981. So I had, was, right. And the way that I had gotten there was a belief that, um, um, you know, a belief in kind of, you know, toughing it out and I was going to accomplish, and I was going to get it done. And I had very little empathy for human frailty. And I certainly had very little empathy for my own human frailty as a human being, just as a, right? And that, I have to say, is probably the major thing that internally I changed in myself was this idea of, um, you know, you know, if you heard the expression, Tracy, of people are as happy as they make up their mind to be. Yes, absolutely. Right. So I grew up with that. One, that is my mother, 100%. And like, I had to flush that down the toilet. Like, that's just not true, not just for me, but it's not true for lots and lots of other people that um, this idea that you can make up your mind and not have trauma affect you and that you can muscle through PTSD is absurd. It's, it's the, right? So all my clients and everybody that, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of sexual assault survivors that I've talked to at this time, they all go through a very difficult, most of them drink too much. A lot of them have, ha, are more promiscuous than they've ever been before. And it's a finite time and it doesn't continue. Um, they, um, they, their grades go down. They don't go to class. They, um, they, they sleep more. If you ask them like, well, you know, just get up and go to class, right? They'll say like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm gonna do it tomorrow. And then they don't do it, right? That's when you know that they need love and help and support. But usually what they get is uh, a system that says, oh, it's about your life choices. If you would just make better positive choices instead of, man, you really need some help from trauma. So again- And does that, go, does, that go, does that go back to the- the comment again, what does this one mean to you, Nancy? Trauma uh, changes a person in mind and body. The body keeps the score. Oh, I love that book by Bessel van der Kolk. Yes. The body keeps the score. Yes. Yeah, I love that book. Um, yeah, no, I firmly believe that. And, and I'm really lucky. And do you know what adverse childhood experiences are? ACE scores? No. Okay, so 
uh, Kaiser Permanente is an insurance company and they wanted to save money. And they realized that they were spending a ton of money on people who uh, were getting gastric bypass surgery for obesity or they were in anti-drug or alcohol programs, but they would keep on doing drugs or alcohol or or smoking, quit smoking, right? So they were paying for all these things to try to get people to be healthier, healthier and they weren't. So instead they're like, hmm, maybe. So they developed a very simple questionnaire that asked people about their childhoods and what kinds of traumas it is that they had. So did you have a parent who got divorced? Did you have a parent or a, a caregiver who uh, was in prison? Did you, was there drugs and alcohol? Were you hit more than to leave a mark? Did you, uh, were you sexually abused? So if you were sexually abused every day of your life or only once, it counted as a one. If same with divorce or all these other like horrible things that happen to children. We say that children are resilient. It's not true. Children are very, very impressionable. And uh, so what they found out is not only did, uh, did somebody's score correlate almost perfectly with things that you might predict, right? Having like chaotic adulthoods, right? So, um, you know, um, you know, the things we just talked, right? Being obese or smoking or drinking or drugs or, right? But also uh, having chaotic in terms of like numbers of divorces or, um you know, those kinds of things, but, but also heart disease, cancer, diabetes, all those, they, they track perfectly. You can take somebody's ACE score. Wow. So what the insurance company realized, remember all their most care about saving money is they're like, what we, what these people need is therapy to cure the un, whatever happened to them. The core. Rather than the treating the symptom of, you know, they're smoking. So like, uh, like our girl Taylor Swift says in bad blood, band-aids don't fix bullet holes, do they? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Right. So you can either fix the symptom or over here, you can fix, you can go to therapy and fix the trauma that happened to you in childhood so that, um, it, so that the impacts of it don't happen for the rest of your life. So you can go on to the CDC in America and you can find out all about adverse childhood experiences. You can take the test for yourself. But my point is my score prior to 18 years old was zero. And that's actually really rare. Adverse childhood experiences are very common for children, but having a zero score meant that it was, it would be easier for me to heal than somebody else who had a score already of say, a, you know, a, a five or eight or 10, right? So um, I was lucky in that way that I, I did have a zero score. Like I, I had, I under, I already had a good feat uh, on me that I, I knew what emotional regulation was supposed to what felt like I didn't I didn't know it until I didn't have it until I couldn't control my emotions anymore until I did feel like you know the sand wasn't moving underneath me so for all those people who are having problems you it to me the good news is that it's all 
healable. It really is. When people say like, oh, it's going to affect you for the rest of your life. No, it's really not. <laughs> you know, I, I can be almost in the exact same circumstances when, as when I was raped, which was for me is night, cold air, uh, sort of in the middle of nowhere. And it doesn't impact me at all. Um, and I say that, and for the rest of my life, I will always have a big dog. So I have a big dog now. I, uh, I've had a big dog for years, but the, the sense of calm that as soon as I got a big dog had on me, the sense of like my dog, particularly the one that just died, um, like crazy knew me, like crazy, like if I was just the slightest little bit apprehensive, like this, so is a standard poodle, which we think of as being sort of frou-frou, like frilly dogs. No, 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 not this dog. So you know how poodles have these long muzzles? And so the teeth would come up like that. And like, this dog looks scary as heck. And, uh, and like, even sometimes like I would be like Snickers, like his the back would all the fur would be coming up and and I'd be like oh it's fine it's fine but me mom going go Snickers go <laughs> but I the number of times that Snickers he knew he was there he was he totally got me and I will always have a big dog because of yeah and I, I honestly think like that's because I got raped so Yes, I'm very healed. I have a, what I, one of the things I was worried about, I don't know about you, Tracy, but I was worried that I wasn't going to have a good physical relationship with my husband or, or you know, whoever I ended up marrying. And, uh, and, um, you know, that, that I have a great physical relationship and, uh, right. So w whatever you're worried about, not, not healing from, you absolutely can heal from. You just got to find out what works for you, right? There's a million different things. And that book, Bessel van der Kolk, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, has a bunch of different types of healing in it. So keep going until you find one that really, really works for you. And, and in your experience, how much of it has to do with starting with talking? How, how can you actually go oh. through the healing process yeah. if you actually don't acknowledge your trauma, number one, like an, like a, an addict, a, um, alcohol, an alcoholic, you cannot recover from or manage your disease if you don't first as a human acknowledge yourself that you are an alcoholic. Same with trauma, Nancy. What is that the most critical starting point is to talk about your trauma? Yeah, I would. So um, everything you agree, everything you just said, Tracy, I 100% agree with. And um, I didn't, um, I didn't really connect with my first therapist that I had, but who I did connect with was I have a circle of friends. So Joanna Reese and Mandy Calder, who's now Mandy, Amanda Holder, uh, Tracy Grumman, Laura Kohler, all my friends from college who could listen, who could kind of, again, my friends were really good catchers. My boyfriend at the time, Mitch Bird. He could listen. He could just kind of get it. Um, I'm really grateful that that um, the people that just happened to surround me were not really judgmental. Um, I would say I was much more judgmental on myself than they were of me. 
but I was, I was able to, in some cases, I don't know about you, Tracy, but I had diarrhea of the mouth. Like I couldn't, like, I would even be talking inappropriately about having been raped, like during a sorority rush. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, I was the opposite. I buried it. I didn't say a word for seven years. Yeah. And so different, but, but yeah, that, but, but that, I think like that message, it just came through quickly. So you found a, an amazing bond of friends around you that made you feel safe, that you trusted, and that actually had the ability to listen, which goes back to the beginning of this podcast, which we spoke about. But the message that just came like a lightning bolt through there for myself and for others is to know that in times of fear, uh, which was my experience, didn't know how to operate, didn't know what to do, didn't know anything, couldn't right. add one and one together at the time. Right. Don't realize in those moments of fear, the extraordinary circles of help that are actually surrounding you. And when I hear your story, I immediately go back and think, I had those circles around me too. I can name right now 20 people without even blinking an eye that would have been there to help me, yet I didn't operate or I didn't have the capacity to go tell someone, which there's that life-changing decision mm. in that moment. What do you so, do? So, so so I'm a lawyer, not a therapist, but let me just ask you there, ask you, Tracy. Um, so you couldn't, but, but could you talk about other things that, um, you know, like feeling calm inside yourself? Could you like, in the moment, so I wouldn't necessarily talk about having been raped, but I would talk about, um, you know, feeling anxious or, um, being overwhelmed or something like Nothing. that. Nothing. Nothing. It was, it was literally dead to me for Wait, seven years. And, yeah. And was it, was it conscious or was it um, like, I'm definitely not going to talk about this or was it just like unconscious sort of hidden from yourself? It was almost like the drug that knocked me out, knocked out any ability to think about it for seven years. So I never in that time woke up and said, not can't deal with this today, not can't deal with this today. Or if in those seven years, somebody was yeah. talking about rape and assault a lot yeah. and it yeah. never triggered me, nothing. I didn't even have a conversation about it. Didn't, didn't affect me one bit. So it was so deeply unconscious what happened to me. Uh, again, I yeah, am yeah. not a so, therapist, I, mean, yeah. I have no when idea. Talk, yeah, but what I think is fascinating is like the body keeps the score, your body like saved you and protected you and loved you until you were ready to be able to deal with it. Right. So it was, that is a protective mechanism that our, that we, that we like our bodies do that has nothing, like you just said, is unconscious that, you know, until when you were ready, there it was ready to deal with. This leads me to a question that I've actually come across. I've read a lot of articles and interviews over um, the course of your lifetime. And there's one that keeps popping up that I, I'm really fascinated by. And it, it has to do with the fact that initially you had, you went and got help. Your story was public immediately. So there was no silence in your scenario, unlike mine. But then there's this, there's this little bit that keeps popping up where 
it talks about Nancy Hogshead for years. There were two decades of silence where you didn't speak publicly. You didn't talk about your rape. You didn't talk about the assault. It almost went away from, and there were lots of articles about you and lots of interviews. So this fascinates me. It also goes on to say there was a person in your life, a mentor, a friend, that advised you and talked to you one day about saying, Nancy, I think it would be healthy for you to speak out a bit, use your voice and talk more publicly about your, um, about your assault. I'd love to know who that person is and why that mm. person saw something about you that they thought needed help. Is there a silence that happened to protect you in those 20 years? Oh, yeah. No, I, I was not ready to talk publicly about it, like just to be able to tell the story like I just did. Um, it, it, you know, it probably took me 20 years to be able to just to do that. So um, before I tell you who the person is, is uh, um, so my, my professional life was um, I went to law school and I, um, I always assumed that I was going to be doing Title IX work for the rest of my life. And I thought it was going to have to do with uh, women getting to participate in college sports. So you and I got a lot out of participating in sports. And I, I thought that was, that was what sort of the alpha and omega was going to be. Title IX started moving into sexual violence in college campuses. And so my profession went with it. And um, I, I worked with numerous schools and I wrote law review articles about it and whatnot about, um, and I, I worked with um, University of Colorado. Lisa Simpson was raped by football recruits. And as a part of the settlement between the parties, University of Colorado hired me to work with the school for five years to make sure that something like a Lisa Simpson were everybody got fired. The president, the general counsel, counsel, the athletic director, the football coach, everybody, all the head folks lost their jobs. And they want to make sure that never happened again. So I really got to learn like the ins and outs of how sexual abuse and sexual violence happen, what an institutional response should be, and a, 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 a reasoned institutional response. And um, right, so I I, I, I went from there and I was talking about it. Uh, I was giving a lecture about it from an academic point of view about, right, here's what the law is. The school has to have actual knowledge. They have to remain deliberately indifferent. And I was right, talking and diff giving different cases and whatnot. And the person was, um, was uh, Richard Lapchick. And Richard Lapchick is the civil rights guy who is a human rights um, advocate and uh, using sport as the vehicle to make sure that there is no racism in sport that, uh, that right, so to, to use sport to end racism globally, okay? So he's really good friends with, or was good friends with Nelson Mandela and uh, Desmond Tutu and numerous other people. And he's always, uh, I've known Richard probably since I was two, uh, 22 years old. And, uh, when I met him, he reminds me that when I met him, um, I also was meeting, um, um, oh, who's Lou Alcindor? Who the, um, um, uh, ah, um, 
the very, very famous, but he's like seven foot six basketball player. Okay. I don't remember meeting him at all. I remember meeting Richard Lapchick because we really connected. So he's the one who said, after I had just given this very academic lecture about all I had, all I knew, all the clients I had worked with, both schools and individuals. And he said, you need to include your personal experience. And I said, no, I think I'm more comfortable just talking as an expert in the subject matter. And he said, you really need to. And that's when he reminded me, like, I think I had told him how, like, I had, after I was raped, I used to go to the library and try to find uh, role models or people who had gotten through it and I couldn't find them. And he's like, you are that person. And that's when I started, um, you know, kind of figuring out how it was that I was going to do it. I kind of looked for role models out there, like who, who does this well in a way that doesn't leave the audience freaked out, that you're giving them a gift, that you're, you're, um, you're having them think about sexual violence in a new way that, right. You, you don't just want to like barf on them. Right. Yeah. And like, here's this horrible thing that happened. Right. So like, what, what is the message? Like, how, how am I, how am I helping them in their lives? Um, you know, beyond just sharing a bad experience that happened. And, and, and I, I really was not ready to do that, to give that gift. Do you know why, do you know why you weren't ready to do it? I know you're, that's a big question. You're such a strong human athlete, all those things. Is there a reason that you might've been afraid or um, why you didn't want to talk about it yet? I did not. Um, Look, number one, I didn't know how, and I didn't know how it would be a contribution to somebody else. But Mm. more than that, like I just wasn't healed enough, right? So it was a very scary event. And, um, you know, I probably, if somebody had asked me about it, I probably just would have started to cry. And I have a deep empathy for people who, you know, when, when I work with a client, um, they have to tell me everything. And that's hard for them, really, really hard. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm really honored that they would tell me everything. And it's like, when you ask questions, it's a little intrusive. Um, so, um, yeah, I just wasn't, I wasn't ready. I wasn't both emotionally and also intellectually, like, how do I make sure this is not just, um, which, which again, another message that just pops out straight away for me is validation for everyone listening that there is no right or wrong. There's huge validation Mm. in the fact that Sometimes I actually started feeling, I have felt so guilty in my life so many times, and I think I'll carry it for the rest of my life, why I didn't do something different that day. And then I see someone like you who did it different, and you went and told somebody, and there's that level of guilt. But what I just heard coming through your story there is that you had a long period of time where you weren't comfortable, even though it was a public story and people knew about it, you didn't have a personal level of comfort to talk about it in certain spheres. And that gives huge validation to every individual whose story is incredibly different person to person that it is in your own time. It's when you are safe and when you trust the moment that that's the right time. 
Yeah, actually, Tracy, that's that's a really good message. I mean, that, you know, everybody has their own time of when they're ready to tell it. I'm always really impressed with uh, particularly women who are, you know, anybody under 18 or, you know, 25, like young women. And that's typically who does get raped is young women. Um, but for them to be able to speak out um, I think of all of the Nasser survivors, and I think of Rachel Den Hollander, and you think of uh, Michaela Maroney, and you think of Allie Reisman. These are amazing women who are very young, we have to remember, uh, who are able to speak out. Um, I think that the criminal justice system, can you imagine like being a child being sexually abused by a parent or somebody in authority? And the only way to get this person in prison and away from abusing other children is to make the child be, you know, be public and tell the, the nitty gritty of exactly what happened. Wow, that is a harsh system that mm. we have in order to keep other children safe is to, you know, it's almost a, so much of. It's almost criminal in nature, in my mind, it's my perspective, it's criminal in nature yeah. to just say it, it just. It is. That's another it whole is. crime in itself. Testify? That's exactly right. It's child abuse of another way. Let's be honest, like how can you not see it that way? I'm sure somebody does. <laughs> Again, it's my perspective, but incredible. Right. Right. Uh, well, we've covered a lot here today, and uh, this is a really inspiring time in the world. The vaccines are rolling out 2021. There's light at the end of the tunnel. You had a cocktail party tonight at your house. That's amazing. And we've got the Tokyo Olympics knocking on our door. So, Nancy, why don't we end with just a, a nice little message to the athletes that are preparing right now across the world that have their dreams in their hand that get to go to the Olympics and what little message would you like to share with our athletes? Oh. Yeah, I would like to share with them that, you know, um, I made the 1980 Olympic team and we boycotted those Olympics. We did not get to go. And at the time I found meaning in not going because my brother had to register for the draft. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do something for world peace, I'm me not going to the Olympics. And even though that turned out to be complete utter bullshit, back in 1980, it meant a lot to me to um, find meaning in not going. And for all those Olympians who didn't get to go to the Olympics in 2020, and have had to go a whole nother year, I mean, you and I know what that kind of level of training is like. Um, I hope that you found meaning in having to wait that other year. Um, if you've never been to an Olympics, it is an incredible opportunity. Even, I guarantee, even though there are no uh, people in the stands and there are no people cheering on, um, this really is a celebration of the best of the best of the world. And uh, you're really in for a treat. I wish you all the best, no matter what happens up or down, that's what's going to happen. 
Um, I was a waitress for a short period of time. And there was a guy who came in every single day who lamented his Olympic experience. And I used to have to, he drank too much, but he always gave me a big tip and I would have to like pour him into a taxi. And the message is whatever happens is going to happen. So, um, you know, just remember that you are gonna remember this time for the rest of your life. I am almost 60 years old. And at this cocktail party downstairs, people still were A, congratulating me, B, it turns out that my neighbor, uh, this uh, 18 year old broke the high school record that I set in 1978 and she just broke it, right? So people neighbor. are still talking. What's that? I'm my neighbor, right? You're joking. Oh my God. 78 right, record. And um, she's like, don't worry, you still got the, she was like apologizing for breaking the record. I was like, no, good for you. Okay, but my point is, is um, <clears throat> what's happening to you is going to carry with you for the rest of your life. And I'm very happy for you for that because you worked so hard for it. You've waited a whole year to be able to get it and you deserve it. So go for it and have fun. Brilliant. All right. Well, that is a high note and that is positive thinking. Love it. Nancy, from my German background, I never say goodbye. We say Auf Wiedersehen. And that means until we meet again. And I love that because Open Stance is here to be shared by everybody who needs it. You have an open invitation to share whatever needs to be shared on this platform anytime. Welcome open invitation. And thank you for the privilege and the honor to have had that chat. You are changing lives today on so many thank levels. You, thank you. Yeah, thank you for everything that you're doing. You're making such a difference out there for um, to just change the conversation so that people can shed the shame and the things that keep them from being able to get the tools they need to be able to recover. So thank you. To learn more about Champion Women and for help with any issues related to women in sport, such as sexual harassment and abuse, participation or pregnancy discrimination, please visit www.championwomen.org. And the U.S. Center for Safe Sport offers live confidential help over the phone on 866-200-0796 or visit www.uscenterforsafesport.org. Hi, this is Tracy Smith, and I would like to say a special thank you to the following people for contributing to the making of Open Stance. You are all an integral part of bringing this podcast to life. Alex Moltenoff, my editor, what a pro, thank you. Kim Rodenbaugh-Llewellyn for your friendship, support, counsel, and your belief in me. Thank you for sharing your book, Master of the Mask as a resource. Nancy Hogshead-Makar and Champion Women, thank you for paving the way and for your leadership. You inspire me every day. Elise Marie Hunter, thank you for providing me the rights to use your Spotify track, Light as a Feather. And to my husband, Jimmy Smith, your love and continued encouragement have helped make my vision come to life. 
Thank you for giving me the greatest gift of all, understanding. Jimmy, you have helped me, and that help will now help many others as Open Stance grows and finds its way to people who need its support and education. And to my mentors who have shared their brave voices, you are making a difference in the world by sharing your experiences. This podcast only works with your support. Thank you to my brother, Brady Height, Kim Rodenbaugh-Llewellyn, Nancy Hogshead-Makar, Gavin Badger, Aaron Aldrich-Sheen, and Amelia Thorpe of ameliathorpe.blog. And a special thank you to Life and Mind Psychology in Sydney, Australia. Thank you to the founder and primary clinical psychologist, Stephanie Allen, and your amazing colleague, clinical psychologist, Alana Carpin. Thank you all very much.